My heart and soul is filled up. Hallelujah. 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 He's alive. alive. I'll tell you, I am so thankful that I have the joy of having this opportunity on a day like today because there's nothing like being able to celebrate the greatest event in human history and to celebrate the promise of hope, promise of love, promise of peace that passes all understanding. And I'm thankful and privileged to have you with us today and to open the Word together. Let's uh, pray together. Lord, truly my heart is full to overflowing. I cannot express to you, Lord, how overjoyed and thrilled it is to be able to celebrate together with other saints, other believers of like precious faith, and to join with Christians all around the world who are lifting high today and celebrating the risen Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so, Father, we thank you that it is our privilege to look into your word today, to realize that our hope is not based on our feelings, our hope is not based on my opinion or someone else's opinions or what we read in the various forms of news media. Lord, our hope is rooted in your word and in Jesus Christ who is revealed in your word. We pray, Father, that you might, even this day, sow the seeds of your word in our hearts and bring forth the fruit that your spirit would work mightily in us, Lord, and bring forth only what he could produce. That is life, that is truth, that is hope, and that is indeed everlasting joy in Jesus Christ. We pray in His great name. Amen. I'm going to read a lengthy section of Scripture this morning, beginning in Matthew chapter 27. So if you have your pew Bible, if you'll find your way there to Matthew 27. We're going to begin reading in verse 57. And continue on down through... Chapter 28, verse 15. I've been preaching through the Gospel of Matthew now for about three years, and we've picked up the pace. We've skipped a couple of chapters. We're trying to, to, to land on these verses so that this is what we're going to look at uh, this morning. Chapter 27, beginning in verse 57. And when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus This man came to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given over to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out in the rock, and he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. And Mary Magdalene was there, the other Mary, sitting opposite the grave. Now on the next day, when which is the one after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days I am to rise again. Therefore give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day, lest the disciples come and steal him away and say to the people, He has risen from the dead, and the last deception will be worse than the first. And Pilate said to them, You have a guard, go, make it as secure as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure, and along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. Now late on the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, 
Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look to the, at the grave, and behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his garment as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. And the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. Just as he said, Come see the place where he was lying. And go quickly and tell the disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you into Galilee, and there you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to report it to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. And, came up, and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they shall see me. Now while they were on their way, behold, some of the guard came into the city, reported to the chief priests all that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and council together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, You are to say, His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money and did, they, did as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day. The authors of the New Testament in these Gospels include extensive testimony confirming the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It is as if they knew that the massive implications would take place if Jesus had remained dead in that tomb. If Jesus was still dead, they knew that he would have been remembered forever as a fraud and a false teacher. And that everybody who followed him would deserve to be pitied because they would have no real reason to trust and no real reason to hope in anything that he promised to do. But if Jesus was raised from the dead, if Jesus is alive, then the kingdom of God is triumphant. If Jesus is alive, death and the curse of sin will one day be completely overturned. If Jesus is alive, those who surrender and who trust in Jesus can have complete and full assurance that they are reconciled to God. And they can enjoy eternal life. If Jesus has been raised from the dead, His claims are true. He is worthy of all worship, adoration, and honor. If Christianity stands or falls on the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and either Jesus is alive and the Gospel has real power to change lives, or Jesus is dead and His gospel is nonsense. It is because of these essential issues, the opposites that are weighing here before us, it's because of those things that Jesus Christ's resurrection, and it is the pivotal crux of Christianity and the Christian faith, that God by His Spirit led the authors of Scripture and these Gospels to supply us with ample, reliable testimony 
regarding the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I want to take several minutes this morning and I want us to look at this extensive passage here and to notice several practical implications of these original eyewitnesses and their testimony surrounding Jesus' resurrection. If you have notes you want to follow along, feel free to do that. If not, put your seatbelts on. Here we go. First testimony, number one, Joseph. We begin with Joseph of Arimathea. He, as a wealthy man, interestingly enough, we learn from Luke chapter 23, was a member of the same Jewish council, if you will, the same Jewish Supreme Court that met only the previous night and had voted to put Jesus to death in this phony baloney trial. Interestingly enough, Joseph, we believe, did not attend that particular illegally called and hastily called meeting because we read in other parts of the Scripture that he never consented to have Jesus condemned to die. And so when he came forward and Joseph asked for Pilate, from Pilate, have permission to bury Jesus' body, he clearly was demonstrating remarkable courage. For him to step up at that moment, it was, it was obvious that he was going to face remarkable uh, hostility from his colleagues, his fellow uh, leaders there among the, the Jewish people in that Sanhedrin, they called it along with perhaps the disdain of Pilate, saying, oh, brother, here's another one of these guys asking for involvement of me in this affair. Now, the question I ask myself is, why would Joseph put himself at such risk? I mean, we've heard nothing about this guy until this moment. And clearly, and I'm not looking for anything tricky here, clearly the reason that Joseph got involved was because Jesus was truly dead. Think about it. Why would he get involved? Why would he stick his neck out? He knew that the Jewish law required that a burial is to take place before sundown. And Jesus had no relatives living in that area. He was from Galilee. There's nobody in his family that's going to come and find a burial plot for him, which is the custom of what was to happen in that situation. And therefore, Joseph and, interestingly enough, a guy named Nicodemus, Some of you may know of him from John chapter 3. They hurriedly buried Jesus in Joseph's newly created and built grave. Now here's the key point of Joseph's testimony, and I'm going to move on. Joseph's willingness to take these risks made sense only if Jesus was truly dead. Joseph would never have asked for Jesus' body and hurried to bury it if Jesus was still alive. Pretty obvious, pretty straightforward. Let's move on to the next one, number two. Let's consider the testimony of the angel found in verses 2 through 8 of chapter 28. The testimony of the angel at the grave of Jesus provides important information to those people who assumed that Jesus' dead body, which had been placed there in Joseph's brand new tomb, was still undergoing decay. They are assuming that because the body has not been embalmed, the body is going to do its natural course of decay. It's going to have a putrid smell. It's rigor mortis has set in. All those kinds of symptoms are going to be in place. And the angel there rolls away this massive stone. And by the way, why is the stone put there? The stone was probably put there initially, and the common practice of that day what it was put in place to protect the body from wild animals that would come and feed on a carcass. 
That's the reason they put this massive stone in place. But in this particular situation, what the angel does is make sure that stone is pushed aside, and this was done to make sure that everybody could inspect the tomb, that they could verify that the tomb was empty. And the angel also clarified why the tomb was empty. He comes bringing this news to make clear what could have possibly be misunderstood. And the disappearance of Jesus' body was not due to human involvement. But there you see, letter A, it was because of God's power that had intervened. This was a work of God that had accomplished this. And Jesus had been raised from the dead. It's the power of God that now has clearly broken into the affairs of this fallen, unjust, corrupt world and has provided hope that the kingdom of heaven would be pushing back that corruption that is caused by evil in this world. And the angel emphasized this miraculous, momentous event was not unforeseen. This was not something out of the clear blue. He goes back and echoes in verse 6, which Matthew has already noted in his gospel, that Jesus had predicted it not once, not twice, but three times, chapter 16, 17, and chapter 20 in Matthew's gospel. His predictions, Jesus' predictions, had been now proven to be true. If Jesus had not been raised from the dead then his teaching, I would suggest to you, would be irrelevant. If Jesus had said three times that I'm going to be put to death, and here are the situations in which surround that, and I will be raised from the dead three days later, if he had said that, and it didn't happen, I would suggest to you, why should we believe anything he says? And I've included in your notes a very helpful comment by Tim Keller, pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church, here in New York City, in his book, The Reason for God, notice what he says, the implications of Jesus' prediction. If Jesus rose from the dead, then you don't have to accept, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on, on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. That's a profound insight. That's a helpful, uh, logical step that it forces us to really begin to grapple with Jesus. His commands would have no authority if he were still dead in a grave. But Jesus is alive. He is faithful. He is true. He is reliable. And the angel's testimony set forth the correct explanation for Jesus' empty tomb, that he was raised to life. He was not misplaced. His his body was not stolen. And Jesus, therefore, is king, whose triumph over the grave proves his authority is supreme. And his claim to be God is verified as true. Therefore, we can't ignore him. We can't dismiss him. We can't just, in a cavalier way, just say, oh, that's just okay for somebody to look at. His claims, therefore, have massive weight and implications. And the angel's saying, don't miss this, people. This one is indeed an event that has happened just as he predicted. The testimony expands further. The testimony of the women. Verses 8 through 10 of 28. 
If the account of Jesus' resurrection was merely a myth, or if the account of Jesus' resurrection was merely a fabricated story, then I would suggest to you the next set of witnesses, these women, would never have been included in the story. You say, why would you say that? Well, it's nothing short of astounding that the first persons to bear witness to Jesus' resurrection were of all people, don't take offense, were of all people, I'm speaking now as a first century Jew, of all people, women. In first century Jewish and Roman circles, women were marginalized. Women were viewed as those whose testimony would not be reliable in a court of law. They were considered to be of little value. And yet the angel imparts to them, to these women, he imparts to them the most significant earth-shattering news in all of human history. Even more startling is that these same women were the first to encounter Jesus after he had been raised to life. I love it. Matthew is knocking a home run here out of the ballpark. As he emphasizes this, as with all the other gospel writers, it's clear that this is quite startling. Even more startling is that these women now not only hear the news about Jesus and they're there at the grave to see it's empty, but they're actually coming face to face and encounter with Jesus Christ in his resurrected body, and they were privileged to be the first to worship at his feet. And they were the first to be commissioned in giving a task, in charge, giving them responsibility, giving them the privilege of taking that good news, commissioned by the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's these women. Sometimes I think we skip over that because of here. The testimony of the women helps us see a glimpse of the promise-filled realities of the kingdom of God. Those individuals to whom the world assigns little value are elevated and affirmed as equal bearers of the image of God. And they are those who are also affirmed as having equal dignity in the household of God. And in the body of Christ, in Jesus Christ's kingdom, the outcast, may I remind you, is welcomed. In the body of Christ, the oppressed are liberated and they are defended. And those who are considered unlovable are welcomed with open arms. Even now, an incredible movement is underway that never has he- much has heard about this. But in India, if you are born in one of the lowest of the Hindu castes, one of the lowest levels of society, actually it's not even listed as a level in the Hindu caste system, it's below the lowest level. If you are, broke, if you are born into this world as the lowest of those particular, beyond the, the lowest level, you're called a Dalit. D-A-T-I-D-A-L-I-T. If you are a Dalit, that means you are one of those broken people. You are one of the quote-unquote untouchables. Millions of these typically poor and illiterate people are finding dignity and finding hope 
as they escape from the lifelong shame they've always known as Dalits because they're flocking to Jesus Christ and being welcomed into the kingdom of God. You see, it's amazing when Jesus affirms here in this text and talks about these women. The kingdom of God, He's reminding them, when it comes in its fullness, there will be gathered at the feet of Jesus a vast multitude of people from every tribe, from every language, from every ethnic group. And they will be united as one holy nation. And that one holy nation, they are going to be side by side with each other. And they're going to enjoy elevated positions of power and privilege, joining together, worshiping from all sorts of backgrounds, all sorts of positions they may have had in life, all sorts of family connections, no matter where they've come from, my friend, all the nobodies will be joining with those who are uh, perhaps the great bodies of this world, and they're going to be all joined together, worshiping Jesus Christ, who out of His compassion, who out of His joyous love and pity, has been shown to those who repent and believe. It's a portrait of what the church, my friend, is all about. The elevating of those who were the, 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 the disenfranchised, the nobodies of the world, are lifted high. Why? Through Jesus Christ, the lover and lifter of those who are left behind. Perhaps you can identify with someone like that. You feel like you've been unloved in this world. You feel like you're a nobody. You feel like you're one who is disenfranchised. My friend, would you look at Jesus Christ and all of His greatness? Here He is reaching down, welcoming those who are the untouchables, welcoming those who are the the, the disenfranchised, those who are the nobodies of the world. That's the testimony of these women. Are you listening? I move on to number four, the testimony of Jesus. Found only in verse 10. Only verse 10 of 28, chapter 28. Jesus' testimony is very brief. His words convey tremendous hope and encouragement for those who struggle. Struggle with what? Who struggle with guilt and struggle with failure. Jesus, knowing that every one, every single one of His apostles fell away. Every single one of His apostles failed to remain loyal to Him during, the holy, during those, those moments, those dark moments after the Passover meal. And Jesus commissions Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to tell His brethren that He would meet them in Galilee, that base of ministry that they had used for three previous years. Jesus' love for His brethren, in verse 10, is what the key point here is, His love for His brethren continues on. His compassionate love had just led Him to endure upon that cross the penalty of their sin when He died, in their place, and now His forgiving love for them is going to restore them. And then He's going to commission them to minister through His enabling power on His behalf, even though they had failed, even though they had fallen short of their devotion to Him. His grace, my friend, is going to be proven to be greater than their sin. No one can condemn Jesus' brethren. 
And the testimony of Jesus is that we can be free from condemnation. Our hearts may condemn us, and boy, they sure do, don't they? Satan is called in Revelation, he is called the accuser of the brethren. It is Satan, our arch enemy, who will constantly throw at us, look at you, how could you do that and call yourself a Christian? It is our critics who may find our faults and point out to us how we've been inconsistent or our failings. It is those who are our enemies who oftentimes can find us in our most vulnerable and in our areas of greatest failings. But it is Christ crucified, Christ raised from the dead, Christ who has ascended and exalted to the place now where He's interceding for us on our behalf is the hope that we can have that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that is what Jesus, the witness of Jesus, is conveying, hopefully someday, as it was communicated to His brethren. Same thing is found in Romans chapter 8. After building a strong case of all of the uh, absolute certainties of God's work of redemption, Paul writes this great conclusion. He says, Christ Jesus is He who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us, and who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall, Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness, or peril, or sword. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through Him, watch this, through Him who loved us. Jesus and His testimony is, I love my brethren. I gave my life for them. I was raised for them. I'm ascended on high and exalted for them. And I am interceding for them. My love remains toward them. Do you know that love, my friend? A love that assures you it will never remain, never be, be taken away from you. Nothing could separate us from the love of Christ. I continue on that letter B. If you notice that Jesus' testimony also in standing before these women was to confirm that His redemption on that cross was vindicated by the Father. The fact that He had been raised to life meant that those who trust in Him, repent of their sin, they can know for sure that Jesus fully paid their ransom. Romans 4, 24, 25 says, Jesus was delivered up because of our transgressions and was raised from the dead because of our justification. What's he saying there? Here's his testimony. Everyone who believes in God, who raised Jesus from the dead, is reckoned or counted as righteous. Not because we act better and not because we are known to be people who don't mess up as much as other people do. It is only on the basis of this gracious exchange that our sins are counted against Jesus and Jesus' righteousness is counted or reckoned as ours. There's a song that I listen to often now that sort of summarizes this particular exchange that God offers to us. All our sin for His grace. What a glorious exchange. All our sin for His grace. What a glorious exchange. Jesus' resurrection appearance is meant to impress upon every guilty sinner 
that all attempts to remedy our moral failings by self-improvement are utterly worthless. Jesus' triumph over death proved that His atoning death on the cross is God's only remedy for full and free forgiveness for those who humbly admit their helplessness and who extend their empty hands of faith, saying, Lord Jesus, rescue me, save me. I am slipping under the waters into your wrath if you don't somehow rescue me from my sin. There's nothing I can do. I have no life preserver. There's nothing I can do. And it seems to me that one of the most, this is the, one of the most important agenda items that Jesus had in that period of time between His resurrection and His ascension was to what? Was to communicate to His brethren in Galilee and to reinforce to them, to reiterate to them, He says, you have been set free from guilt and condemnation. Now serve Me. Because you've been set free. You've been liberated. Even though you failed, even though you clearly uh, uh, dropped the ball big time, even though you turned your back on Christ, there is forgiveness through Christ. It's been proven. Look at His empty tomb. So many of us today, I'm convinced, we look too much to our performance or our lack of such to therefore verify as to what kind of level of joy we have or what kind of guilt we're experiencing or what kind of framework we're operating before God. And Jesus is saying, look at the empty tomb. It's been paid in full. Go in freedom. Enjoy what God has provided in Christ. There is no condemnation in Christ Jesus for those who are in Christ Jesus. May I suggest to you one other real quick thought here? Stay with me here. I'm almost done. You know, we started early so I could preach a little longer, right? Okay. Letter C, Jesus' testimony also made clear that since He was alive, all the people of the world who have ever lived, those who are dead, those who are currently alive, those who are born tomorrow, all of us one day are going to stand before the triumphant and all-conquering King and judge. And Jesus will judge all the people of the world as being either those who were relying upon themselves or they're relying upon their Savior. He will make that distinction. He will judge and and weigh all of us in the balance. And therefore, all of us, according to Acts chapter 17, every single one of us, we are commanded. It is imperative for us that we repent that we change the way in which we naturally live in this world by thinking, if I just become a better person, if I just try to improve myself, then there God will cut me some slack. And the implication of that is, my friend, no, no. You must humble yourself. You must repent of that kind of thinking. You must rely upon Christ and Christ alone because someday you're going to stand before the judge. It is an inevitable reality you cannot escape. Jesus is seated at the highest position of honor and authority. He is the one who has conquered death. You cannot somehow sneak around Him. You can't somehow avoid Him and think somehow you'll slip through. And the reason why this is significant, my friends, is because we get to point number five. Here we have the testimony of self-righteous religious leaders and their guards. You say, how does this have anything to do with the previous point? Well, watch this. The testimony of these self-righteous religious leaders 
was that those who had schemed and demanded that Jesus be put to death, to somehow try to destroy him, to somehow try to get him away from in, uh, uh, threatening their security, their power, and their real identity. Because remember, he had revealed who they really was like. He had already called them out. That's why they hated him and, and demanded that they somehow have to get rid of him. And so they're going to, they, they have put him to death. Well, now what we have, their testimony is this. They are being revealed for what they really are and their flagrant hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. In what way? Well, in their determination to have Jesus and his kingdom destroyed, they have compromised their own convictions, their own core beliefs. Because here they were chewing Jesus out, chapter 12 of Matthew, they chewed him out up and down one side and the other about the fact that he broke the laws of the Sabbath. I mean, they laid, him in, they laid into him. And what are they doing here in this text? On the Sabbath day, they go visit Pilate. What hypocrites. Here they are accusing Jesus of being a deceiver. And yet they are bribing guards. And they are breaking their own big rules that they've been supposedly so good at keeping, and they're breaking all those to propagate a lie and to pull off this big deception. And here they are calling Jesus the deceiver when they're the ones who are trying to pull off the great deception. And when their scheme to post guards there at Jesus' tomb did not prevent Jesus' body from being removed from the grave, what do they do? They take money, which they had already probably illegally and improperly extracted out of people, taking advantage of the widows and the, and the weak members of the society. They take that money and they pay and bribe these guards to prevent false testimony that the, te- that the disciples somehow stole the body. And that, that little uh, some, that, that lie is then been propagated and it's been going on and on and on. By the time Matthew writes the gospel about 20 or 30 years later, it's still going around. Those disciples stole that body. Testimony is ludicrous at its face because the, 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 it says that they fell asleep. If they fell asleep, how do they know what's going on? How many of you know what happens when you fall asleep around you? Hmm? I, have, I have no knowledge about anything going on around me if I'm truly asleep. That's what they said. We fell asleep, they stole his body. How do they know? It doesn't make any sense. It's illogical. Here's the point. Testimony of the religious leaders is that legalists and self-righteous rule keepers who condemn other people for not adhering to all the long list of rules that they think are so important, they have failed to do the same themselves. Anybody who, tr- who is proud of their own do-goodism, they do all these good things, my friend, eventually you're going to be exposed as a fraud because you ain't all that. Excuse me. But isn't that the truth? Isn't that the truth of these individuals? They were revealed to be not all that. Their devotion to religious rituals did not transform their hearts of wickedness. And my friend, if there's one thing clearly taught in the gospel, that is this, that all of us desperately need new hearts. Jesus insisted to these religious leaders and to another religious leader, interestingly enough, in John 3, that unless a person is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. doesn't say if he 
acts good in certain areas, it says he must be born again. He must have a change of heart. Christianity is not a man-centered religion that promotes self-improvement. Christianity is God who in Christ rescues fallen, corrupt people by the power of the Holy Spirit who imparts a new nature in us and who changes us on the inside and who gives us new desires and new life and new attitudes and new appetites and new loyalties. That is the message in the real uh, the theme of the Christian faith. And the sad reality is that these religious leaders have been shown to be a shallow, and there's nothing changed in them at all. And well, here's my final point here, my friends. Watch this here. The religious leaders and their guards also provided unintentional testimony about how foolish it is to somehow think that they can scheme against. Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Their plotting and their bribery failed to explain away the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Their attempts to control Jesus backfired. To me, it's an illustration of the principle there in Proverbs chapter 19, verse 21. It says this, Many are the plans in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord, it will stand. It reminds me of here now we're coming up against the centennial of the sinking of the Titanic. I'm not going to ask if any of you were here when the Titanic uh, sunk, so I'll get, just cut you some slack on that. But you know, the Titanic at the time was advertised as the largest, most luxurious passenger vessel of its time. It was thought to be unsinkable because of all its modern uh, amenities and all of its modern design. As a matter of fact, I've looked and found a couple of interesting quotes regarding the Titanic. Listen to this. This is from a news item from the Belfast Morning News, June the 1st, 1911. It sank now, 1912. 1911. The captain can, by simply moving an electric switch, instantly close the doors throughout the ship practically making the vessel unsinkable. It did have compartments that could be shut off. That's true. But due to the compromise and the running into that iceberg, uh, the majority of those uh, sealed off rooms became compromised and filled with water, so much so that that that's why the weight was so great the ship couldn't sustain it. Here's another interesting quote from the vice president of White Star Line, On April 15, 1912, he was quoted as saying this, Philip Franklin, we believe that the boat is unsinkable. Now, I include these quotes here because I thought it was interesting. Another quote I came across by the bishop who must have preached one of the funerals after the sinking of the Titanic in 1912, Bishop of Winchester, said this, Titanic will stand as a monument and warning to human presumption human presumption they say what does this have to do with anything if we think if there's someone here who thinks i can just disregard jesus i can just go on with my life i can make my life work on my terms on my agenda i can accomplish whatever i want i don't have to bend my knee to jesus i would just warn you again 
I don't think you fully grasp the implications of an empty tomb. I would refer you to some very helpful counsel by one of the members of this Supreme Court who once again has amazing insight into what's really going on here. A guy by the name of Gamaliel in Acts chapter 5. Listen to his quote. Advice for people who are trying to oppose Jesus and his movement since he was raised to life. He says this. If this plan or action is of men, that is, it's just a human endeavor, just some sort of groups of guys in these it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow it. Or else you may be found fighting against God. I wonder if there's anyone here this morning who could say, are you one of those who is resisting the God who has triumphed over the grave? Are you refusing to surrender your life to the one that you'll have to stand before someday and give account? Are you a person who is living only for your own selfish fulfillment? My friend, don't be a fool. Don't be presumptuous. Jesus is alive. He is Lord. He is King. He is judge over all. Worship Him. Love Him. Surrender to Him. Honor Him. Yield yourself completely to Him. He is King and Lord over all. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we know that there are many other eyewitness testimonies, many other words we could have looked at this morning to pile on this long list of eyewitness accounts. We think of the Apostle Paul, who was one who sought to destroy the movement of those who followed Christ, those who followed the one who had risen from the dead. And we see how you yourself encountered him on the road to Damascus, speaking to him, blinding him, bringing him to his knees. And so, Father, we come before you this morning aware that there is much more we could be saying, but clearly what we've said, Lord, we believe is, is evident that Jesus is alive, that there is promise for those and hope for those of us who feel the weight of sin, the weight of guilt, the weight of failings, the weight of feeling like we'll never measure up. We thank you, Lord Jesus. There is no condemnation for those who are in you. We thank you also, Father, for the encouraging word that those who are the outcasts, those who are the nobodies, those who are the unlovables by this world, we thank you that there's hope that they are included in Christ, that they are welcomed, that they are elevated, that they are given a sense of what they long for, and that is to be a part of a great family in the church of Jesus Christ. We thank you, O Father, for the reminder again today of how foolish it is to think we can somehow defy Jesus Christ and somehow resist him and somehow by our own scheming come up with ways in which we can deny the realities of what you have accomplished in Christ and avoid what's going to happen to us eventually. Father, help us not to be presumptuous. Anyone here today, I pray that you might by your Spirit impart life into those whose hearts up to this moment have been resistant to Jesus Christ. I pray that you might Cause them to be led to see that there is nothing, there is no reason not to come to Christ on His terms and to worship Him 
like those women and to bow down before him and call him my Lord and my God. We pray, O Lord, that you would cause us in our hearts to be encouraged this day, to be warned and to be challenged because, Jesus, we know you're alive and you're coming again in great glory as victor, as the one who has triumphed over all. We bless you, we praise you. In the name of Christ, I pray these things. Amen.